started last week with a message called The Offense of the Cross, and we're kind of delving into this theme on offense and being offended. And I'm shifting a little week. Uh, this week the title's Triggered, because it's a word we're familiar with. We know what it's like to get triggered, and the question I want to answer today that we might ask today is, Pastor, am I offended? Am I offended? You may not think you are. You may think you're all right. You walk through life without uh, being offended all the time. But I want to encourage you with this. Um, I believe this is true, that uh, any time you go through life with other people, where you're interacting with other human beings, it's almost, not almost, it's impossible not to get offended, not to be offended at times. Um, we do things that are offensive to each other, right? And so uh, you probably offend people, and people offend you, and that's just the nature of our lives. That's a reality. We live in a sinful world. We're sinful people. And so this happens. Um, I think that even if you were to isolate yourself from everybody else and find a home on an island out in the South Pacific, I think you would still get offended at times because you would even offend yourself, okay? <laughs> because you aren't the person that you think you are. You don't live up to your own expectations. It's kind of like the guy that was, he did get stranded out on a desert island and he lived there for several years on his own and finally a boat came by and they saw his smoke signals and stuff and they came to rescue him and they pulled him off the island and as they were leaving, they said, uh, sir, we noticed you had three huts on the beach there. What were those huts? And he said, well, the first one was my home. I lived in there. And the second was the church I went to. And uh, they said, well, what was the third one? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, we, the, the point is that we do, uh, we do get offended. Offense is part of life. We, learn, we need to learn how to deal with it. Or it can have some real negative consequences, and it will, in fact, have negative consequences on us. The point uh, that I want to hit on with this series is that God really does call us into a life of following him. And that includes a life uh, that is moving in a direction of spiritual health, which will lead us to emotional health. Uh, it, it, that's really the life that Jesus calls us to. We see it all over in Scripture that he calls us into relational health. Hey, get along with other people. Love each other. Treat each other right, you know, and deal with offense. It's a lot of what we see in the New Testament because we have churches, which are groups of people gathering together. And so offense occurs and, and hurts occur. And so really, he says, listen, guys, you'll be powerful at accomplishing the mission I have for you if you're unified. And if you're, if you're, the only way to be unified is if you can deal with the things that offend you that you do to each other, the ways in which you uh, irritate and bother each other and even hurt each other. And so because the Bible is made up of stories of people's lives, it's historical accounts, right, of people that lived and the lives they lived, we see, because they're people, we have lots of examples in the Bible of offense, and of people getting offended, and of offending each other, and what they do about it. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at a story in Genesis 25 through 33. If you want to kind of turn to that area in your Bible, you can follow along a little bit. I'll be telling some of the story. I'm not going to read all of it. But uh, basically we start off the year looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah, and how God promised them uh, that he would make them into a great people. Thank you. Take care of me. <clears throat> um, making sure that, uh, that he learned how to follow God. And so God called out Abraham, right? And he promised that he would make him into a great nation. 
The problem was that Abraham didn't have any children, and so uh, he and his wife Sarah were growing older and older and older and not having children. And uh, finally, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. They still didn't have any children. And uh, right, you know, understandably, he said to God, what, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, I mean, you promised to make us into a great nation and give us descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. We don't even have one child, and we're past the age of bearing children. Oh, God certainly promised them that they would have a child, and they did. And they named that son, that little boy, Isaac. Well, Isaac, uh, Abraham, at the end of his life, he sent off one of his servants to find Isaac a wife. And he found one from uh, Abraham's own people uh, named Rebekah. And Rebekah came back and became Isaac's wife. And interestingly enough, they had the same problem. They weren't able to have children. And they were trying uh, to have children according to God's promise. They needed to. Yet that wasn't happening. And so uh, Isaac prayed fervently for a child. And as a result of that, when he was around 60 years old, um, his wife Rebekah got pregnant. And she uh, went through the pregnancy to term and she had uh, began the labor and, and uh, she had a child. He came out and uh, he was, the Bible said he was red-skinned and he had hair covering his body. Usually that doesn't happen to us men until we get a little older, you know. Hair moves off the dome onto the... Sorry, I, I digress. <laughs> hey, um, uh, and so here comes this young man, this little baby out, and, uh, and then guess what? After he's born, another child comes out. And uh, this one's holding on to the heel of the first child. So they named the first one, the, the hairy little baby, the red, red-skinned baby, Esau. And they named the second child, the little boy, two little boys. The second one was Jacob. And so we see in the story of Jacob and Esau, we're going to see and encounter a story where offense takes place. Where um, these two young men uh, were competitive <laughs> And uh, the, in the Old Testament, in, in Bible times, there was what was called a birthright. And the birthright was given to the oldest male child. And this was a double portion of the inheritance. <clears throat> and this, uh, this uh, oldest child, the oldest male child, would become the leader of the family. And so Esau, being the first one born, though they're twins, he was the first one born, he got, he was in line to have the birthright. <clears throat> and so um, Jacob, though, uh, was competitive. He wanted that birthright. Esau was an outdoorsman, liked to go hunting, maybe fishing, liked to bring wild game into his dad, prepare a meal. And Isaac loved Esau for that, enjoyed that. Jacob was a little more of a homebody. He would sit in the house with mom, learn to cook, right? It was just his temperament. <clears throat> so they were very different. But Jacob wanted what Esau had, he was driven. And so we see uh, in the story in Genesis 25, at one point, uh, Esau comes back from hunting, a hunting trip, and, and he's uh, tired and exhausted and famished. And Jacob has been cooking. And he has some stew that he's prepared. Esau comes in and says, give me a bowl of that stew. And uh, Jacob says, okay, I'll give you some stew, but you got to sign over your birthright. So Esau says, well, good's the birthright to me. I'm starving here. <laughs> okay. He signs over his birthright for a bowl of stew. Seems kind of silly and ridiculous for both of them, right, to engage in this activity. But this is the nature of their relationship. And so Jacob takes advantage of Esau in a moment of hunger, 
And Esau allowed his hunger to override what should have been the sense that he was born with. And he gave up the privilege that he had. This was the nature of their relationship. You can see how they begin to develop some problems as brothers and to have some offense and hurt as a result of their relationship. Isaac came to the end of his life. He knew he was going to pass from this life soon. And so he called in Isaac and he said, uh, or excuse me, called in Esau and he said, uh, listen, I want to give you the blessing that the oldest child would receive. <clears throat> and so he said, go out and, and uh, go hunting and, and get, bring me some wild game, prepare it for me, and I'll pray a blessing over you. And again, the blessing was to empower him to prosper and thrive and to carry on the family name. And so uh, Esau left to, to go hunting, and Rebekah heard what was going on, and she said, Jacob, let's get you in on this blessing. Your father's old. He can't see. He's not going to know that it's not you. And so she put some animal skins on him so his skin was hairy and, and prepared some food and he took it into his dad and convinced him that it, he was Esau lying to his father to the point where his dad finally, Isaac finally prayed this blessing over Jacob and gave the blessing to him. <clears throat> Esau came home and uh, uh, was furious and hurt that he didn't get a blessing that was intended for him that was stolen from him. And this continued, as you can imagine, to build the resentment and the hurt and the offense you can imagine that Esau was deeply offended, even bitter, towards Jacob. <clears throat> See, offense hurts most when it is the betrayal of someone close. Psalm 55, King David writes these words, uh, verses 12 and 14, or 12 through 14. It is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion. And close friend, what good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. He's saying, listen, I had a close friend. You're close to me, but you betrayed me. And these are, the, these are where the hurts go deep for all of us. And nearly all of us have experienced that. Esau was betrayed and fooled by his own brother. Jacob and Esau should have been working together. <clears throat> Jacob should have been looking out for Esau. Kind of had his back, right? But instead, they competed with each other, and Jacob wanted to take advantage of Esau. And Esau, um, unfortunately, didn't always see his brother's tactics and fell into it. It seems to me that those hurts, those betrayals that hurt most, do come typically from family relationships, uh, church relationships, sometimes uh, close friends. Betrayals can happen in that area, and I've even known many people who... Um, something horrible has happened to them and they feel as though God is the one who's done it to them. And so they have a great deal of offense and hurt towards God. These are the hurts that can stick with us and they, they stick to our souls. They stick to our emotions. If we don't deal with them, they build up. And they don't go away on their own. And they will cause sometimes devastating effects to us. Leonardo da Vinci uh, had one of his famous paintings, The Last Supper, where he depicted Jesus and the disciples um, in that meal before Jesus went uh, to the Passion. And he was looking for models or uh, people to sit in where he could, uh, um, you know, as he painted the different characters. 
uh, and he came, of course, Jesus was, was one of the first figures that he painted there. And so he found a young man who depicted what he kind of envisioned, a bright, um, strong, uh, good appearance and looked healthy. And so uh, he had him sit in and he, he uh, depicted or drew his depiction of, of Christ from this young man as a model. And then uh, years went by. It took years for him to finish this work, but he, deb- he continued to work. And finally, he was down to the last character, the last individual in the painting that he needed to depict, and that was Judas. And so he's looking for an, uh, a model, someone who might kind of embody what he envisioned Judas being like, kind of twisted, deceptive, somebody that could go and betray Jesus. Well, he saw down on the street a young man that he thought depicted him, kind of hunched over, uh, physically um, looked uh, rough and, and uh, kind of bitter and angry, just had that appearance to him. And it's kind of what he thought Judas would look like. So he contacted him and asked him to come up to his studio, and he did. When the young man walked into the studio, he said, I've, I've been here before. It was a few years ago I sat in as the model that you used to betray Jesus. And Leonardo da Vinci was struck by the effects of sin and bitterness and angry on this young man's life. It would change his appearance so much. The truth is that this can happen to us if we don't deal with these issues um, we don't realize what happens to unresolved offenses. We don't realize it. But they will, over time, turn into something much more deadly to our souls. When left unforgiven, offense turns to bitterness. Genesis 27, after Jacob steals the, uh, the, the blessing from Esau, in Genesis 27, verse 41, we kind of see where Esau was left after all of this. Um, It says, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Uh, Esau got into such a place so bent and twisted with anger and uh, resentment and hurt and bitterness that he uh, envisioned, though his his father, uh, he was going to be mourning his father's death. But rather than just focusing on that and walking through that pain, he was planning to kill his brother. That's really what consumed him. And we can see, though hopefully none of you have gone that far in your mind, it also wouldn't surprise me if you had. Because it's really not that far down the road to get to a place where we're that bent and we envision those things and think that way in our minds, though we might never act on it. But we are so consumed. See, Offense that's not dealt with will turn into bitterness. It will. It's just what is produced when we don't deal with offense. Esau seems flippant about the birthright, right? In the story, he just signed it over for a bowl of soup, which seems ridiculous. And it was. And the truth is, as we walk through life, we get offended by people's actions, but all. Not always, but often. We're a part of the problem. We contribute because of the way we behave, right? We cause and contribute to some of the relational problems we have. See, I've learned over my life from my own experience and also from helping others that uh, it takes two to tango, right? It takes two to have an argument, disagreement. It's not very often, though it can happen, it's not very often that is one-sided completely. When there's a disagreement, when there's an offense, oftentimes there's a contribution made by both parties, right? Hebrews 12 
16 through 7, speaks to Esau uh, pretty with some condemnation. It says, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterwards, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. His behavior, he got caught up in something that consumed him, and he acted willfully in disobedience, right? And so um, the point is that we often lack the self-awareness. We see what others have done, but we don't see our own behavior, and it can be very difficult to do so. Esau was culpable here. Certainly, Jacob had taken advantage of him and had betrayed him, but Esau was not without fault. And part of the problem is he failed to recognize that, so he couldn't correct. He couldn't make the changes to his character and his behavior that he needed to. If we don't deal with these areas of offense, as I said, they build up and they do affect us. We carry them with us, and they can have, uh, they will have consequences to our life. Uh, There's two monks that were headed on a journey. They were walking uh, through the countryside, and they came up upon uh, a creek, and there was a woman sitting on the bank of the creek, looking a little lost and forlorn. And they went up to her and said, uh, "Ma'am, are you okay? What's wrong? Do you need something?" And she said, "Well, I need to get across this creek to." to get uh, to my destination. I can't get across it. I need some help. And they said, well, we'll help you. And so they lifted her up and carried her across and deposited her on the other side. And she thanked them profusely and went on her merry way. And the two monks did as well. And they continued their journey. And they got down the road a ways. One of the monks started complaining. He said, man, my back really hurts. I'm carrying that woman. I think I might have pulled something. The other monk kind of smiled at him and they continued on their way and got down the road a mile or two further, the monk said, man, I am really hurting. I don't know how much further I can go. I really hurt something. And the other monk uh, smiled and nodded. They continued on their journey. And finally, uh, they got five or six miles down the road, and the first monk said, I, I can't go on. I'm hurting so bad, I can't go on. And he laid down on the ground and kind of hollering and complaining about the pain in his back. And uh, his buddy said, uh, do you know why I'm not hurting? Do you know why I'm not complaining? about the pain from carrying that woman across the creek? And he said, no, why? What'd you do? Did you stretch before we did? Like, what did you do? He said, no, it's because I put her down six miles ago. You're still carrying her. Sometimes we carry things, right? We carry things and we carry offense and it bothers us, it hurts us, it affects our lives. Learning to let go and move on as the result of maturing emotionally and spiritually. To move forward and not dwell in the past takes discipline and motivation. Discipline and motivation. Uh, when I was a young man, I went to college in Omaha. I think I've told you guys this, a little Bible school that my mom went to. It was called Grace, and I went there. And um, my first year... I had played a little basketball my senior year of high school, and I wanted to try out for the team at Grace. It wasn't a scholarship team. It was a walk-on team, but it was pretty good and pretty competitive for my level of ability. So I went and tried out, and it, it was pretty tough, but I made the team. Coach let me on, um, and, uh, you know, I set the bench a lot and got to play a little bit when somebody fouled out or something. You know how it goes, a typical freshman year. And so, uh, and, but, it, you know, it was an okay experience. I just played that one year. I wasn't super into it. I 
was pursuing a young woman who I wanted to get married to, and so I had some other things on my mind. But uh, it was a good year, as I thought, and I had pretty good memories of it. Well, uh, years went by, and I ended up uh, married and with my first child. It was probably four or five years down the road, and I was working with my brother-in-law on a farm, and uh, he had also played basketball grace. And so um, we got to talking one day as we were working, and the, the topic of basketball came up, and he had He'd played there as well as I had, and uh, we were talking about certain individuals, and all of a sudden, some things started coming out of my mouth about some of these individuals I'd played with. It wasn't very nice, what I said. I was kind of angry. And uh, after that was over, kind of moved on, but it stuck with me. I thought about what had come out of my mouth, and more importantly, what was inside of me towards these guys. And I recognized there was a problem. I had some anger and some offense that, I was, that I'd held on to. And to be honest with you, I'd never thought about it a day since I'd played with those guys. It's been four or five years. Never thought about it a day. Never came to my mind. It wasn't somebody I was occupied with. But when it came up, I discovered that there was a problem. There was some unresolved things there. So I had to work through some forgiveness. I had to decide, how am I going to handle this? It took me a little bit. It was hard. But I recognized a couple things, is that God had called me to live a life not consumed with anger and bitterness and offense towards others. And so I had uh, the, the discipline in me, right? The discipline part was that I was in a process of discipleship where I was growing in my faith, and I knew that God had called me to something more, something different. And so I didn't necessarily want to deal with that. I didn't want to forgive them and move on. I felt justified in my anger towards them. And believe me, I was. <laughs> I know you don't get to hear their side of the story, but I was. Okay? Uh, so I was right. And yet I knew Jesus, right? Holy Spirit in my life saying, hey, buddy, you need to move on from that. That's not good. That's not how I want you to live. That's not the, the way I want you to think about others and talk about others and react to others. And so I had to engage that because I was already in a process of a disciplined life, right? And I was moving in that direction. And so I worked through it. And my motivation, right, that God had called me to something more, that Jesus had more for me in this life. If you, um, if you and I don't engage that, that process of growth, then what happens is those things that we see every once in a while, they come out, right? Some agitation at somebody from the past, some anger towards somebody that what they did years ago or last year, last week. That stuff comes out. I'm telling you, it's a sign, it's an indicator that there's some bitterness and maybe what the Bible calls a root of bitterness in your life. That that offense, along with others, has taken root. And it's growing and you're fueling it, you're feeding it because you're not dealing with it. And yet we're called to something more. We're called to surrender, guys, our will and our life to the Holy Spirit. We're called to surrender to God and his plan for us and his calling on us. Now, we don't have to. We can walk through this life saying, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I'm not gonna surrender to that. I'm not gonna give in to God. I'm not gonna do that because that's too much. You don't understand what they did to me, right? We can play that game in that battle and we can refuse to do it. What happens is we will continue to reap the consequences of that attitude and that decision. And it's not good. If you don't deal with those things, they will pile up and they will begin to affect you. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of others 
is that if you don't deal with these offenses and they become a root of bitterness, that you become vulnerable. You become an easy pawn in the hands of the devil and he will use you to create conflict and drama in the relationships that you're involved in. He'll use you. He'll trigger you. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll get an offense, right? It's not that hard, really. But he'll use you to create problems and, and conflict. And you will lack the discernment to see that that's what's happening. And I've walked through this. I'm not telling you something. It's, it's absolutely truth. You won't know it. But you will, be, you will be used by the enemy to bring division and conflict and problems into an arena where God's trying to work. And you will not know it. You'll feel justified in your attitude and your behavior. And you'll think you're all okay. And you're right and righteous. And the truth is, because you haven't done what God calls us to, and you're allowing this thing to continue in your life, you'll be used for, for, uh, for evil. You'll be used for what the devil wants to do, which is to bring about conflict and problem and drama. If you don't move on, and if you allow unresolved issues to fester, you will become consumed with bitterness, and that makes you weak spiritually. See, bitterness makes you vulnerable to the devil's manipulation. Hebrews chapter 12 the writer of Hebrews in 14 and 15, uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12 says this way, work at living in peace with everyone. Work at it. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out. That no, one, uh, that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. The writer just warning, hey, hey don't, don't allow this. Deal with it. Doesn't belong in your life. Shouldn't be a part of your life. Because the truth is, bitterness, unresolved issues, offense that we carry, it's sin. Plain and simple, it's sin. It's not to be in our lives, not to be allowed to stay there in the life of a believer. But, as I've said, we can choose to live an unhealthy Christian life. We can choose to live with a clogged up spirit and issues unresolved in us and not deal with them. We can go on that way for a long time. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote uh, about life in the spirit. And when he talks about these kinds of things and how to exhibit this kind of ability to forgive others, even when the offense is great, even when the, uh, what has been done to us is too much to forgive as a human being. Uh, he talks about ways to do that, and it all comes through life through the Spirit. That we're living indwelt by the Spirit, which we are when we trust Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And then we, we have the opportunity to listen to the Holy Spirit, to follow His direction, and to follow His leading, right? And then we gain this strength and power, and we grow as healthy people towards a healthy life in Christ. But he gives a warning in this passage in verse 26 of Ephesians 4. And don't, let, uh, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Why? For anger gives a foothold to the devil. He says, listen, uh, once again, you're allowing the enemy to get a foothold in your life, to have a point from which to push you, to trigger you, to get you to react. And he will. That's all he wants to do is to make you ineffective. Right? He cannot get you back. He can't win your soul over. He's lost that. But he can help uh, ensure that you don't have any good impact, that you're not living on mission and helping others, that you're focused on the things that have been done to you. 
Ephesians 4, 30 and 32. He kind of concludes his passage on life in the Spirit with this. He says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Listen to this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. He's like, listen, get rid of that stuff. It doesn't belong in your life. You need to work to eradicate it. Allowing unforgiveness in our hearts and minds is to walk in step with the devil and what he wants us to be doing. And he will use it to wreak havoc in your life and through you to the lives of others. Wherever you're planted, wherever God's trying to do something through your life, he will use that to cause problems. There's an example of it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, where the gospel uh, originates, right? The day of Pentecost happens in Jerusalem, and, and so all this activity is happening, and people are coming to Jesus and becoming followers of Jesus, and then the, uh, there's persecution brought on the church, and so the, the disciples spread out, and Philip goes down to Samaria, and he begins to share the gospel in Samaria, and people are trusting Christ. The Samaritans are coming to Jesus, and so uh, the, the disciples in Jerusalem hear about it, And Peter and John go down to Samaria and they begin laying hands on people and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to do, uh, exhibit the the presence of the Spirit. Uh, They're speaking in tongues and prophesying, things like that, evidence that God was there at work. And so this is happening. Well, in Samaria, there was a sorcerer named Simon. And Simon had a lot of spiritual clout in the community. He was able to perform some, uh, some mighty deeds and acts and people even called him the Great One kind of gave him the attribute of, of being godlike because of his ability and his power. And so uh, Simon was following along watching the disciples do their miracles and lay hands on people, and they're filled with the Spirit and the evidence of that. And he uh, became a follower of Jesus. He was kind of tagging along. And at one point he saw all of this. He went to the apostles and he said, Hey, could I give you some money so that I could have that power and ability to do what you're doing? I want in on that. In Acts chapter 8, verse 20, but Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are filled, listen, you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. The evidence, the fruit in, in uh, the Simeon was that he wanted to buy uh, the ability to transfer the Holy Spirit's presence so that he could regain his prominence in the community. It was selfish. When we focus on our offense, we're focusing on ourselves, and it leads us to the same place that this man was. We see even our faith, even our walk with God. How can it benefit me? What is it that, uh, how can I uh, benefit from this? And that angle, that attitude, that impression begins to develop in our lives. It's just what a, a root of bitterness produces. Unfortunately, though we know we should eradicate these uh, roots of bitterness and we should seek forgiveness or give forgiveness, <clears throat> we need to deal with this offense, even though we know we should do it, unfortunately, just because it's the right thing to do, we don't always just go ahead and do it. At least I don't. I don't know about you. Maybe you do. Every time the right thing to do, you do it. My guess is you don't, though, or you wouldn't have any offense that you're thinking of as we're going through this series, right? And so the truth is, without some prodding and and even maybe the threat of some punishment sometimes, we don't do what we should do. 
It's kind of like uh, the young man, John, who was given a gift one day of a parrot. And uh, he got this parrot in his home, got a little cage for it. But he began to discover the parrot had a horrible attitude. And every time the parrot talked, he would uh, spit uh, profanities at him. And he would uh, just call him names and berate him. And John got kind of frustrated. Listen, I brought you into my home. I'm feeding you. Straighten up. And so one day he kind of yelled at the parrot, you know, knock it off. And the parrot just came right back. You knock it off. I'm not going to, you know, and he just, oh, just kept grew in this horrible attitude. And one day Johnny got so frustrated, he grabbed the parrot and shook him. Straighten up, you know. The parrot's like, I'm not going to do what you want. I mean, just, just horrible, you know. And John got so frustrated one, at one point, he took the parrot, he opened the freezer door, put him in the freezer and closed the door. I'm done with you, parrot. Well, after he cooled down a minute, he started to feel bad. Then he heard the parrot squawking in the freezer. He opened the door. The parrot came walking out calmly, stepped onto John's outstretched arms and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Well, John was stunned. And he was about to ask what had happened, why the big change in attitude. The parrot said, I just got one question. What did the turkey do? Hey, uh, (laughs) we're not like that parrot at all. Um, (laughs) I cannot make you, can't force you to forgive. I wish I could. Um, because the truth is that uh, as I've contemplated this series and I've molded over, uh, a truth came to me, and I believe it's absolutely the truth, is that drama is where the devil hangs out. Drama is where the devil hangs out. <laughs> and he would love to keep your life filled with drama. And offense and hurt feelings, and being upset at somebody else is the very definition of drama. And if he could consume your time with how many people have wronged you and what they've done and how they've upset you, or even that you would have those things undealt with and not be aware of them, (laughs) so they clog up your spirit and your soul and your personality, and they steal the power that you should have as a follower of Jesus, he would love to do that. And so drama is something he'll constantly try to engage you in. And get you to uh, engage in. So that he can easily keep you in a sinful pattern of behavior and thinking. The truth is that um, I've watched people have a hard time. And and if we allow this to happen, we have a hard time staying employed or staying in a group of people. I've watched people that um, pull out of churches because of this. uh, Get divorced because of this. um, Fight with their children for these reasons, quit jobs, really anything that uh, puts me around other people. I get offended, I get upset, right? And, and sometimes pretty easily and certainly over justifiable reasons. But the problem is, guys, that in not dealing with those, in not growing up emotionally and spiritually to deal with those offenses in the way God calls us to, is to stay immature and it's to pull out. And, and so we, we don't want to be around people because people are hard to be around and because it constantly is triggering us and upsetting us. And instead of us saying, listen, I need to do something here. I need to grow. I need to take a step of maturity. I need to get disciplined and motivated to overcome this issue, right? I stay trapped in it and I stay inactive and and it slows me down. It stops me from getting to the place that God wants me to in life. 
See, the picture that we have in the Bible of a spirit-filled life, a person that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's living the way God wants us to, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, here's what your life looks like. Here's the character traits that come out. This is how you live. This is how you interact with people. These are the qualifying words. You, you know them. Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. How about gentleness and self-control? It strikes me that that, that list paints a picture of a very healthy person, emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy. Not a person that's yanked around by others' behavior, what others have done to them but a person who is actually able to bring into the world something better. The presence of God, the power of God. Like our Savior who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Even forgiving those that were killing him as they did it. Because he understood, he, he, he was above it. He saw out of a love for them, felt compassion for them, even though they were killing him. This is... The kind of life that God wants to give us, it's what he calls us to. It's the health, it's the, uh, the emotional strength and maturity, the spiritual maturity that he wants us uh, to walk with. We have a ministry here that we've started called Celebrate Recovery. And Celebrate Recovery, we just have a pilot group kind of going through it, and it'll open up this fall to, to more people. But Celebrate Recovery uh, <clears throat> is a ministry that's focused on three um, aspects of our lives, three things that can get us uh, can slow us down or stop us. And uh, they, they have three words they qualify them or define them with. First is hurts, which is kind of what we're talking about today. The other one is, is uh, hang-ups, things I can't get past, I can't move beyond, which could also be what we're talking about today. And then the third one is habits. And my problem is, as a pastor and leader, is that Celebrate Recovery typically gets uh, billed and kind of the reputation of being the place where you go if you have an alcohol problem or addiction problem. And uh, it really isn't. It's a place for uh, people before they get to that, that spot because typically addiction problems come from unresolved hurts and hang-ups. And so the ministry really is focused in on helping, helping us move past those things that are clogging up our spiritual life and our emotional life and lead to our lack of health and our struggles. And so um, my, I'll be frustrated if, if our Celebrate Recovery gets uh, billed as the place you go if you have an alcohol problem or an addiction problem because that's not what it is. Um, it, it, it's just an intense discipleship process where you walk through uh, a process intentionally and you have accountability and all this stuff to, to go through the steps to get healing and to get help from hurts and hang-ups, unresolved conflict, offense that has happened over the years. And guys, I want that for you. I need that, okay? And I'm trying to walk in that so I can call you to it because it's the life that God has us to live. And listen, just real, we, we are called to be salt and light in the world, to be people that make a difference, that help others. When we don't deal with our own issues, we don't have the ability to help others. We're caught in the same trap they are, and the truth is we don't have to be. They don't necessarily have an answer, okay? But we do. We have uh, the Spirit of God who dwells within us that wants to pull us and push us and prod us to a place of health and wholeness. 
You'd think we'd want that willingly. We'd chase after it, but we don't always. Genesis chapter 33, Jacob and Esau meet again. Jacob ran away, obviously, because Esau wanted to kill him, so he had to take, take off, and he found himself with Laban, a man, and had a couple of daughters, and he fell in love with one of them, and, and uh, you, you, re, you need to read the story. It was a little bit convoluted. Jacob ran into another guy that was deceptive, <laughs> and, uh, and they played against each other um, and fought against each other, but Jacob ends up breaking uh, that relationship, sort of broke down, and so he's running away from his father-in-law with his two wives and all of the animals that he'd acquired and all his wealth, and He's headed back to his homeland, and he knows he's going to encounter Esau again, and so he's a little fearful. And so like any uh, strong um, uh, you know, manly man would do, he sent the women and children uh, on ahead of him, right, so that they would soften up uh, the encounter with Esau. And so uh, he sent some gifts ahead of him too, and you know, he's trying to soften Esau up in case he's still angry. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so when they finally encounter each other, come a face-to-face meeting, and Jacob said, please take these gifts you know, that I have for you. It's very interesting because Esau says, keep your stuff. I got plenty of my own. <laughs> and so uh, where they had been fighting and uh, tearing each other apart and where Esau had been so bitter he wanted to kill his brother, he found some peace because he realized there was more out there than just what they were fighting over. But they, Esau's not an example of a man of God necessarily. He's not got a great reputation of being a, a, you know, a, a Yahweh follower in the Old Testament, living the exemplary life. He kind of goes off in a path he shouldn't go down, but he does figure this out, that he's not going to live forever with resentment and anger and bitterness towards his brother, and so he lets it go. And it's kind of a, power, a powerful example to me how even sometimes uh, non-believers, people that don't believe in Jesus, figure this out. But as Christians, we can struggle with it uh, sometimes even harder, and probably because the enemy's trying to get us to struggle with it harder. But they do find peace and resolution Jacob also shows some repentance, which helps a lot. He asks for forgiveness, and he comes with a broken spirit and a humble spirit. And that's a big part of finding peace in our relationships and seeing offenses break down. And so my prayer for all of us is that we'd find this path towards wholeness, health, healing that God has for us. Jesus paints the path for us. He calls us to it. The Bible's full of, it, of uh, instructions and, and recommendations and commands even. Um, this really isn't an optional thing. Jesus, in the, the Lord's Prayer, when he taught his disciples to pray, you'll remember he said, uh, he taught them to pray, God, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, our offenses. What? As we forgive those that sin against us. There's a conditional qualifier in there. God says, if you want forgiveness then you need to give forgiveness. And so we really don't have an option here. If I can press you really hard, you really don't have an option to go on like this if you want God's forgiveness. We've got to deal with these things. The truth is that it's a great place where we um, arrive at a place of wholeness and health when we do. There's a book I want to recommend to you that would take you a little more in depth with this. Our leadership team, elders and staff, of uh, uh, pastoral ministry team have been reading through this and going through it. A book called The Bait of Satan. And I'm trying to get some more copies out here. I had a few, <clears throat> but I think, I think they might all be gone. But you can pick it up. Uh, it's available. But it's, uh, it'll take you through a lot more in depth on this topic and issue, and it's really good. You may not agree with all of his theology, and that's okay, um, but his, his dealing with the content, with this issue of uh, overcoming offense is really good, really biblical and sound. God, thank you for uh, your goodness to us and for calling us into a life of living for you and living uh, surrendered to you. 
And I just want to continue to pray for each one of us as we go through this life. And Father, we're, we're triggered and offended by a lot of things, and it seems our culture is getting more offended all the time. And it's harder and harder for us just to get along with each other. I want to pray for this body of believers and for our church. God, that you would help us to discover the spiritual insights, the breakthroughs that we need so that we can walk through this life in a spiritually and emotionally healthy way as we relate to others. And we can be the people that can help others overcome their hurts and hang-ups and habits. Thank you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.